Saying low, Apple Music. Episode 43 of the interview series. And, you know, it feels like I probably interviewed this guy 43 times. I've been talking to Dave Grohl on and off for a very, very long time, right since the sort of mid to late 90s. I didn't get a chance to speak to him on his debut album, but I don't think really anybody did. That album just kind of landed as a selection of impeccably created demos and went on to become one of the great modern rock debuts of that time. Since then, Foo Fighters have been on an ever-evolving journey, making albums, documentaries, and adding members to the point now where they really are one of the great legacy acts in rock and roll history. Dave Grohl, what an amazing redemption tale. It's been told many, many times times before, but this time just felt different and I really enjoyed it. So I hope you do too. Myself and the ever wonderful Dave Grohl right here on the interview series. You continue to amaze me, David Grohl. There is so much dancing to be done to this record, and yet somehow you have not sacrificed the rock. It's incredible. Um, Look at you all grown up with your modern day disco classic. It's unreal. You know, listen, here's the thing is I... I guarantee that most musicians have that that groove or that vibe somewhere within them. Um, they just may have never found the right time or place to let it out, you know. And so, and, and I think over time, if you've been in a band for a long time, you get sort of comfortable in that place that people are familiar with, you know. Like, oh, they're a rock band; they're going to make a song that sounds like this. Um, but you know. In in some sort of uh, attempt at longevity, like you just have to be able to sort of reach out and 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 uh, try things that you've never done before. And I mean, I'm a drummer. It's yeah. like, you know, I love trouble funk, and I love the Gap Band, and I love you know. There was always funk in your playing. There was always funk in your playing, even if you trace it back to those Nirvana records. You know, you 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 brought as much swing as you could in, <laughs> as much as you were allowed. <laughs> I remember I, I explained that one time to Pharrell when I was interviewing Pharrell. And I said, I said, yeah, you know, like if you listen to Nirvana's Nevermind, like those are disco beats, dude. He's like, what do you mean? And I was like that. Crack, 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 crack. I'm like, that is straight totally. up disco for sure. When we started making this record, it was like, okay, let's go there. Let's do it. I just love that you took this supposed time off, which you do all, you know, sporadically throughout your life. I'm taking time off. Everyone's, you're not the only one rolling your eyes, mate. Even I'm rolling my eyes and I'm not, I'm not even in your family. I mean, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what that term means really. I mean, like I remember actually once, maybe like about 20 years ago, I was sitting on my couch in Virginia. And I remember like my body relaxed and my eyes kind of closed halfway. And I let it, I let myself do that for like five minutes. And I'm like, Oh my God, I think I'm relaxed. (laughs) Like what, what is this? Like I'm not moving or saying anything. And I feel like I'm floating that this is, this is, I never want to do this again. (laughs) So meditation is not on the daily ritual. Oh my God. Listen, I've had more than a few people say, Dave, meditate. And I'm like, dude, that's like throwing someone who can't swim into a deep, deep pool. Well, you took some anyway. You came off the last tour, you took some. I don't know. There's that great Letterman quote, isn't it? That is, before you take time off to spend with your family, you should check with your family first. Um, <laughs> you, you know, what's it like when you sort of decide that it's time for you to not be Dave Grohl in the rock and roll band, which your family, I'm sure, to some degree has gotten used to that rhythm of and and get to a, you know experience and celebrate that with you. Um, but then you come home and you switch it off. Um, what kind of person are you? Are you a nightmare? To be honest, the 
it, it feels a lot more foreign to me to like jump up on a huge stage in front of a ton of people than it does to like wake someone up in the morning and make them pancakes and eggs yeah. and get their virtual learning started. Like, you know, I, tr- I actually try to keep the two very connected so that it doesn't seem like some weird Jekyll and Hyde thing. Like I love artists that go up on stage and become someone that they're not when the lights are off, you know, like, you know, I grew up loving Kiss, grew up loving Bowie. I watch a, an artist like Alice Cooper or Marilyn Manson, people that like put on the thing and then they go do it. And then they, you know, and then they jump in the minivan and take their kid to the bus stop. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I can do that. Like, it would feel too weird to me. And, and actually, it was a realization I had once where I thought, oh, I get it. The best way to do it is if you go up and you just be yourself. Like, that works better for me. I, you know, I, as much as I, I love a band like Slipknot, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, that, what, those are, you know, these are fucking aliens. These are fucking superheroes. These are fucking, totally. Like, as much as I love that shit, I don't think I could do it. Like, I, I couldn't walk up there if I didn't feel like myself, so. I mean, the first time I ever saw Slipknot was at a German rock and roll festival on album one when the, when the masks were found on the side of the street and the boiler suits were homemade. And it was like, it was me. It was, yeah, it was fucking raw. And it was me and it was t- Tommy Vance, late great Tommy Vance and a few others on the side of stage. And I just remember the clown coming up amongst this plume of smoke with his drumstick making this I'm going to slit your throat action and I genuinely thought none of us are getting off the stage alive like and I feel I feel foolish thinking about it now because it's like I've met him so many times but it was fucking scary well you know it's weird because I remember like I didn't get into the misfits until really this year because my 14 year old daughter was like dad listen to the misfits like now i've got my kid getting me that's sick but one of the one of the reasons why i feel like i never connected to it was uh it it wasn't musical it was it was i mean it wasn't their music it was it was the aesthetic where i'm like okay so wait a minute like say the guy like ran out of toilet paper he's got to run to the corner shop is he gonna have like the the devil's lock and the <laughs> thing on his face when he goes to pay for his toilet paper. Like I couldn't get it, but yeah, I mean, I've always thought like, I'd hate to, to be confined by this claustrophobic yeah. uh, feeling that like you have to be the guy on stage when you go to buy the toilet paper. And so I thought like, all right, well, I'm going to walk up on stage like the guy that had to go by the, but but it's funny because the more you've become yourself, which is you know as you as you grow as a human being and and you mature, you've carried that with you with the Foo Fighters and become more and more successful every step of the way. That doesn't always happen. A lot of your peers haven't been so lucky, you know. And, and but then when I think about you as a young as a younger rock star, even in the first couple of Foo Fighters albums, there was some swagger there like i remember you coming out and there was you know you were yourself but there was also like you know the clothes was were kind of it was all pretty coordinated the hair was pretty slick like it was like you were sort of having a, a crack at it for a minute there and i wondered what rockstar them felt like to you when you felt like you maybe had to try it i think that that was probably my most insecure i've ever been in my entire life just feeling like Feeling like I couldn't, you know, walk up and be myself. When we first started the band, you know, I'd never like really stood in front of an audience with a microphone in my face and a guitar in my hand. It's one of the reasons why I decided to do it. I was like, I've never done this before. I might as well, I've got nothing to lose. Yeah, yeah. Let's, just, let's just try it. But I, I definitely had like raging insecurities, whether it was, you know, how I looked or what I said or how I moved and all of these things that I'm sure a lot of artists have been through the same thing and and maybe feel 
you know, even longer into their career. But um, um, it, yeah, it was funny. You know, recently we did this sort of 25th anniversary special where we looked at photos of ourselves from over the last 25 years. And um, oh God, I mean, you know, it's like looking through a yearbook and seeing like <laughs> your teeth hadn't grown in yet and you had glasses and braces and you couldn't believe you had that haircut. It's like that. And in a, it, it's exactly the same because, you know, we've been in this band so long, we've we've gr- basically grown up yeah. in this band, you yeah. know? Like uh, when we started it, I was 25 or 26 years old and now I'm 52 years old. I've spent over half my life with Nate and Pat and Taylor and, um, you know, it becomes something more than musical. It's just like, okay, yeah, I know we're a band. I know we make records. We go out and play shows and shit. But it's so much deeper than that at this point. It's it's a lot deeper. God, I just remember Pat, man. I remember when you guys first came out, like Pat was just like... Oh, talk about swagger. Unbelievable. Dude. Yeah. The way he would play guitar, like it was the most fun thing. It, like there is nothing else on the planet that matters right now than you watching me play guitar. <laughs> yeah. So the first day he showed up for Nirvana rehearsal, I was like, oh, oh my God, the guitar player of the Germs is going to be here. I mean, I grew up listening to the Germs and... That was a long time ago, and they were dangerous, man. That was like some Los Angeles. Yeah, that was guttural, guttural shit. Yeah. yeah, and so and he showed up as Pat Smear does, and I was just so blown away. It was just not what I expected, and you know the energy that he brings to the stage with the Foo Fighters, and the energy that he brings to to every room he walks into was the same energy he brought to nirvana and that last year of the band that pat was with us it was like it it transformed the experience into something else and he really did bring so much happiness and joy but you know like i don't know if you remember but the first few years of of the Foo fighters pat was the host of mtv's house of style wait what was he i don't remember this yes like pat was a he was a host of mtv's house of Of style so he would interview designers and supermodels and things like that and and he fit in perfectly Perfectly. it was like oh my god you know i thought he was quitting the foo fighters when he did back then i thought like oh he's just going to be the host of house of style like (laughs) you know he could have been he could have been the host of project runway he could have been the host of project runway i was going to say the same thing he could easily held that down do you know what i mean yeah easily easily when you have like the most punk rock motherfucker of all time who's also the host of House of Style, who also, his favorite artist of all time is Mariah Carey. It's like, that's the guy you want to be in a band. 100%. Like, you don't want some like, dude with like in chaos UK tattoos all over him. You want Pat Smear. While we're talking about the legendary Pat Smear and we're going deeper than I think you and I have ever gone before, I want to stay there for a second because I've never had a chance to ask you this. I went to the Tibetan Freedom concert in 1998 and I watched you guys come out in the afternoon and play a blinder. And it was everything I wanted that day was you guys just came out and brought joy to the world. And I just, and a lot of my eyes were on Pat the whole time. And then not long after that, you know, Pat decided to leave. And I've never had a chance to ask you just what kind of hole that left for you because not just your friend, but just the energy and charisma on stage. You know, that was a tough one. That was really tough. And it was really early on. You know, it was before the second record even came out that he decided he didn't want to do it anymore. And, um, you know, when we started the band, we didn't really have a plan. You know, we just knew that we wanted to play. We played as many shows as we could. We put thousands of miles on our van. 
it was a solid year and a half of just constant touring. And it really took a lot out of us, you know, as much as it inspired us. I think that we had sort of waded in so deep, we realized like, oh man, this is, you know, this is not just doing gigs on the weekend. This is something else. And and that was something Pat had never really experienced. Even when Pat joined Nirvana, um, by the time he joined Nirvana, we were, you know, we were on a tour where we were on buses and doing three shows a week to, as so as to save Kurt's voice and things like that. So we dove in head first with the foos. And I think at the end of it, you know, it's it seemed like, okay, we're doing this again. This is serious. And I, 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 he, you know, he basically said, I'm, I'm just not really into it anymore. And to be perfectly honest, I was on my knees, literally on my knees, begging him to stay. I cried. I begged him to stay because I didn't know if I could do it without him. Um, and, you know, he very kindly said, like, I'm just not into it, dude. I'm just not into it. Like, what... You know, you can't make someone love you. You know, you can't change someone's mind, really. Yeah. And so I realized, like, okay, but the beginning of this band represented something more than musical to me. It was a continuation of life after losing everything. And I thought, I can't stop here. You know, I have to keep going. Like, I started this band to keep going, and now I have to keep going. And when he left the band, it definitely, you know, it there was a void there. There was a big hole um, that we couldn't necessarily fill so but we just kept going you know we just kept going and then years later we reunited and we hugged and cried and said like come on man Let's go. And that was a long time ago. So many happy endings. You know, you got to go through the trials and tribulations to get to a happy ending, right? And when a happy ending, you get to a new beginning. And yesterday, at the time of recording, well, we got to a brand new beginning. And look at this, huh? 25 <laughs> years. <laughs> 25 years after the band formed, I turn on the inauguration after a long day at work. I'm getting all these messages, how beautiful it is, but my head's down, I'm focused. And thank goodness I turned it on when I did because the first mug I saw was you. And the first <laughs> band I saw was your band. And you know I love you guys. And I watched yeah. you play just the most beautiful, stirring, just wonderfully arranged version of times like these that that just was so in line with the, with the occasion but also so perfectly in tune with who you are as a band you were entirely yourselves how was that experience i gotta ask you it was crazy man it shouldn't be too much of a surprise to anyone that we would accept that type of invitation you know a lot of people prefer uh that their artists remain apolitical you know like sometimes when you when you dip your toe into, into the political arena people get really worried you know, we're we're not rage against the machine by any means, but of course, you know, there are certain things that we believe in, and when we're uh, invited to be a part of something like this, um, I consider it an honor. And I mean, having grown up in Washington D.C., it's like these things are more than just sort of like political spectacle. Like my dad was a Republican speechwriter. Like I kind of I know I've seen a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff. So. Um, but yeah, to be included was, uh, it was an honor. And the weird thing was that we filmed that like maybe about a week or a week and a half ago, live in our studio in, in Los Angeles, and we sent it to them. So when it came on TV, I was sitting there with a beer and a tie-dye shirt watching this, just thinking like, 
this is so fucking surreal. This is so fucking strange. You I know? love it. And um, and I was getting texts from all my friends at home, like, dude, you didn't say you were fucking coming. That were like, what do you do? Why didn't you call? And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's we, we it's pre-recorded. Don't worry about it. But um, but you know, there have been a few times where we've performed for um, political campaigns or uh, or presidents, and there's something about it that sort of humanizes the process to me. Like when John Kerry was running as the Democratic candidate against George W. Bush, I went on the campaign trail with him and I would sing acoustic songs at his rally. You know, the bus would stop at the little town square and the people would come out to listen to the candidate explain their position on certain things, you know. And that was really inspiring because it, it, it humanized the democratic process. It was like, okay, these people are coming out they're not all Democrats. They're, some of them don't know who to vote for, but they want to listen to what the person has to say before they make their choice. Yeah. And I wrote In Your Honor after that trip. I wrote Best of You. I wrote uh, uh, Resolve, songs like that. And um, so it, 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 to me, it's inspiring to be a part of these things because it, it, it humanizes the, the process to me. Personally. You know, I'm glad you mentioned those songs and, and also, you know, you, you have done this like throughout your career and your music, you have found a way to inspire and draw people into the conversation without necessarily being, you know, hardline political to your point, not doing what rage do at times, what Eddie has done going on stage, Bush Liga, you know, I respect and appreciate every time an artist is. Absolutely. My line is I never expect it, but I respect it when they do. Right. One of the things that I've noticed over the years is the band's popularity has grown is that um, our audience has become a lot more diverse. So our music is somehow bringing people together that may not otherwise spend two and a half hours right. with each other, yeah. right? Yeah. Whatever it is that brings them to the gig, they'll all get together and they'll sing My Hero. They'll all get together and they'll sing Best of You. They'll all get together and sing Everlong, whatever it is. And they'll all sing it for all of these different reasons. So I appreciate and respect um, the, the power of music to do that, to bring everyone together. Not a lot of things can do that. Not a lot of things do that. And maybe that's what we've been really missing. If you think about the way that everything has come to a head in the last 12 months, and there's a lot of different moving factors to that, but it shouldn't be ignored that the fact that we don't get that opportunity to come together as a community despite our differences has caused a a much more extreme linear belief system. Yeah, I mean, I think that people have to somehow, on some things, agree to disagree. I mean, there's there's some things that I'm like, you know, I'm fiercely opposed to and, and against. Um, but I, I, having been raised by a Republican father and sort of a liberal Democrat mother, um, I I had to sort of navigate this middle place. At the same time, stand up for the things that I believe in. I think that music is something that can bring us together, at least in a moment. Um, but at the same time, you have to you have to fight for the things that you really believe in, and there, and there are certain things that I'm very against. So therein lies the unique chemistry makeup of every individual human being, right? Can you walk the line between the two things? Can you be an empath, and can you also be very specific about your beliefs? Yeah, it's, it's not it's not easy. 
it's not easy, you know, it, it, and, it, and, you know, as you, as you grow older, your opinions change, it gets harder. But it's funny because there's a song on this album which really takes me back to a very specific memory that I had and I was so glad I wasn't alone. You wrote a song waiting on a war because of that feeling that you got like the world was going to end. And, you know, you and I, you know, of a similar age group and I remember being in that, in that house, I remember specifically going to bed while the light was, it was still light, so I was that young, and asking my parents what happens if there's a nuclear war? And, you know, my mom saying something like, well, you know, it's a fait accompli, so we're going to go out in the middle of the road and we're just going to spend our last few minutes together. Not sure that was the right advice for a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but she was doing her best, right, to try to say it. But she to try to say there's nothing you could do about it. Yes, it set me on a different path. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But the point is you wrote Yeah, a, no sugarcoat it. No sugarcoat. But you wrote a song about it and it really touched me because it really was this kind of fear. And we felt that again now. We're feeling that sense of fait accompli again. Well, I don't know if that fear's ever gone away. I mean, you know, you look at some of those propaganda films from the 50s and 60s, and you've seen how, um, you know, people can be kept in that, in that place of fear, sometimes by the powers that be. Yeah, it's a tactic. The submission and the tactic of keeping people in fear. And unfortunately... You know, I guess that I, I was I was hopeful that maybe it was just me. I was hopeful that maybe it was just my generation, that maybe it was just that time in the early 80s um, where, you know, we had the Reagan administration and the conflict. It just felt like missiles were pointed in every direction. That's what it just felt like to me as a kid, like you could never escape. There was a missile pointed at New Zealand, as weird as that is to say. Yeah, same. And so, but I would have these dreams where... I would see the missiles going up over my backyard or I would see, or, or I'm in my backyard and like and a, and a soldier would come out from behind a tree and I'd start running and they'd shoot me in the back. And there was this movie in the eighties called the day after. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, but yeah, I did. It, oh my God. How terrifying, like unbelievable. Like, so as we were making the album, this is last fall, this is fall of 2019. I was taking my daughter Harper to school and she looked at me and she said, um, Dad, is there going to be a war? And I said, well, what makes you say that? And I guess that she had either seen something online. She's 11 years old. If she'd seen something online or maybe saw something on the news that, um, you know, that, that gave her this anxiety and this fear that there was going to be a war. And it immediately took me back to when I was her age. And then I just, it, it made me so sad. It broke my heart that, that she was feeling the same way I did when I was young and that, you know, that any child should lose their childhood to this overwhelming feeling of like hopelessness and fear. And, and, uh, and there's, I mean, there's so much more to life than just that dark feeling. Like you have to find the good, but so I wrote the song waiting on a war that day. And, um, and, you know, at the time I wrote it for my daughter Harper. And like, when I listened within the last few weeks, having listened to that song as we're like preparing the video and editing the single and stuff, I'm listening to it. I'm like, God, if this song doesn't apply to right now, holy shit. I mean, it's crazy. There are lots of moments on the record based on the timeline versus now where, and we saw this with the Run the Jewels album and everything else where art and reality are really meeting in some crazy crossroads here where it's almost like you're just seeing around the corner of what's coming. I mean, that's what you hope to achieve as a, as a writer, but you can only tell your truth at the time. It just turns out it's true now. There's not a lot of foresight when you're writing songs. You're usually, you're usually sort of like in this introspective place where well, I'm usually sitting on the floor of the vocal booth and everyone's like, Dave, come on, let's go. We got to <laughs> see something. Let's go, come on, let's go. And so 
But, you know, in a way, you could write some of your most revealing lyrics because you don't have time to self-edit. You're just going like, Bleh, and you're just like writing whatever's like racing through your brain. But when I listen back to the things that I wrote, whatever, a year and a half ago, um, a lot of those things do apply to what's going on right now. But mostly, you know, those feelings are... I'm not the only one that feels this way. Like, I'm not the only one that feels the way I feel when I sing Making a Fire or Shame Shame or whatever uh no son of mine it, it, songs like that it's like they're pretty like universal emotions that most people feel and um and they and they can apply to you know different periods in your life mm. but a lot of the songs i listen back like medicine at midnight i was doing an interview with someone and they're like it was a japanese person they're like um medicine at midnight are you referring to the vaccine and i'm like no i'm not I'm referring to like a whiskey before bed. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's, it's a different kind of vaccine. I mean, I, exactly. when I listened to the album for the first time, no disrespect intended, but it was pretty clear to me, perhaps because I've had a whiskey with you here and there, that it was clearly, that's clearly what you're writing about. Yeah. I don't need a prescription for that medicine. Yeah. You write about things like shame, shame, and we talked a bit about that at the end of last year, and it is one of those things I've never heard really beautiful, you know, actually put on record in the way you did it, given a personality, given a physical form. Um, you know, more than just, you, you externalized it. It's something that just gets internalized so effectively because it is a killer. I mean, shame is one of the great killers. And, uh, you know, yet somehow you gave it a face and you made it into something that was useful. And I've just always really tried to reject shame. I've, I've always tried to get past it. I've always felt that it's a very toxic experience. There's, there's some things that are just difficult to, to feel. And I don't mean that it's, they're difficult to, to literally feel but it you know they're just they're hard to to face you know um i think it's one of the reasons why a lot of people go to therapy and have someone to talk about uh to talk about these things with because um because god forbid that you just like bottle them up inside fortunately i have a place to put these emotions you know um whether it's, you know, on a sheet of paper in front of a microphone or in front of thousands of people uh, under the lights at a rock show. Yeah. If I didn't have anywhere to, to express these things or to put these things, I wouldn't be as happy as I am. Um, it's a strange thing to say, but there has to be some sort of balance. Like, I hope that everybody has some way to express these things that they're not willing to, to uh, confront and with that song in particular, it's like everything just sort of fell into place. You know, the, the dynamic of the song, the mood of the song, the tone of the melody, the um, the visual. Um, it just, you know, all of these things came together so that they ultimately the sound and the lyric and the visual does personify something really specific. And that doesn't happen all the time. No, it's really it's intense and intense. Listen to your point. Um you get to sing these songs. And in many respects, people go to therapy because they get to see somebody reflect back upon them an interpretation of something that you can't get past, yeah. thereby untangling the knot. Now, when you get to sing those songs in front of thousands of people and people like those songs, so they sing it back to you and they scream shame, shame back at you, they feel the same <laughs> way. <laughs> they feel the same okay, way. But, but they're going to so be going stuff. shame. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. It's a big game. It's a bit Cersei. You know what I mean? It's a little bit Cersei. Yeah. Oh, no. God damn it, Zane. 
That's terrible. Well, you know what's strange? As we were saying this, I may have told you this before because we've, we've done so many interviews over the last 25 years. When I was a kid, I used to have this cassette player. My mother gave it to me, I think, for Christmas or my birthday. And it was just like one of those portable cassette players with a handle on it, right? I would put cassettes of my favorite music on as I went to sleep. I'd hit play. I'd put it on my windowsill right next to my bed. Then I, I had these blank cassettes, and I would put them in, and I would hit record. And I would talk about my problems. This is maybe when I was like 13 or 14 years old. Wow. I would hit record and I would just talk about what was going in my on in my life, like the things in, in high school and things with my father and things like I would I was like revealing my innermost feelings to a cassette tape. And then I would hit stop and I would rewind it, hit play, and I would fall asleep listening to myself talk about my problems. Whoa. Isn't that fucking weird? I don't know why I did it. I don't know for how long I did it. But in this weird way, it gave me this whole other lens or perspective on it because my they weren't just in my mind. I was hearing myself saying these fucking things. <laughs> and so I had cassettes that were just filled with the most fucking depressive teenage shit. <laughs> and I would fall asleep listening to them almost like someone listens to like rain clouds and riverbeds and i fucking love that you know why i love that you know i mean yeah i god i really do hope your mom still has them someday and at some point maybe if you're 60th they come I out burn those tapes dude they are i bet you did i bet you did but the thing is right i kind of love the fact that you had enough self-awareness to realize that by actually externalizing it again, you kind of decontrolled it. It lost its control over you. It became this thing that was no longer real. First of all, I mean, I inadvertently stumbled into that. It wasn't like some sort of decided therapeutic process. It was just like, oh, I'll just talk about how much I'm pissed at my dad. It's similar to when I hear a Foo Fighters song on the radio. Yeah, yeah. So if I hear a song like Best of You, if it comes on, it's not unlike me listening to my problems on those cassettes it's when true. I was a kid. It's like, oh my God, I'm hearing myself say these things. <laughs> hey, Dave, how haunted are we talking about this place in Encino? Have you ever been in a haunted house or have you ever lived in a place that just felt off? Yeah. When I lived in Seattle from like about 1993 to 1997, I lived in a house that was a new house on the edge of the woods north of Seattle that definitely had something or someone else in it, right? I never made a huge big big deal out of it. I was never one to like be overly concerned or spooked by that kind of thing. But weird shit went on, you know. They're like noises and doors opening and footsteps and dreams and the feeling that someone's as you're sleeping right in your face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reoccurring dreams of a barefoot woman in a muddy dress and sweater with her like reoccurring dreams of this same person just staring at me from the living room or staring at me from the basement or stare like things like that and it went on and on and on and on and it, it was fucking weird but i stayed in the house i mean i didn't move away but this house had a lot of the similar that similar energy it was like things would happen when we weren't there we'd come back to the studio and you know, a, a session would be uh, reopened or different. There were things added to sessions that we didn't necessarily put there. Some things were like moved or detuned or the feeling of someone being next to you or behind you in specific places, either wow. in the stairwell or in specific rooms. And, you know, I lived in this house for a year 
10 years before we made the record there. Really? So you remembered it and decided to go back there based on your experience of living there? Well, the experience when I had living there wasn't like spooky to me, but it was to my kids. So my daughter, Harper, would see things in the corner of her room that I just thought at the time she's like two or three years old. And I thought, you know, that's a two or three year old kid. But she saw things that I didn't. And um, but then and and I lived, I rented it for a year while we were remodeling my house. And then when we went back there to do more stuff, it it was weird. Like, you know, to me, when you make a record, I would hate to just like wander into some sterile laboratory studio where a million bands have made records and then just kind of like get creative. Like that's to me, it's more about the experience and the communal experience of doing it somewhere that sort of challenges the process. Like yeah. in a basement, the Sonic Highways episodes, like all of those different places. And so doing it in a house like that only added to the experience. You know, it also made us want to get the fuck out of it. Yeah, because I was going to say, the record was done really fast, and then I read why, and I was like, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> it was like... In terms of experience, because I remember seeing footage of you guys recording in utero, and you were in, you went up, was it Albini Space? Where did you go? You went to the middle of nowhere. Wasn't it like snowing the whole time, and it was just brutal? Yeah, it was in um, Cannon Falls, Minnesota, in February. <laughs> and I mean, that's when, like, the high is five degrees below zero. Like that's as warm as it's going to get that day. And it was this house that had a studio, not connected to it, but about 50 yards from the house. The house is amazing. It was this cool sort of like mid-century architectural type that almost looked like a Frank Lloyd Wright sort of thing. It has swimming pool in the house. And then there was a 50-yard walk to the to the studio itself. And it was a beautiful place, but, you know, it was cold i mean i was done with the drums in the first like three days me and albini and the guys we tracked the drums super fast i mean that record was like one or two takes for each song now yeah Yeah. we spent another week there as kurt did the vocals but again it was like cool let's record this and get the out of here what was the one that you didn't want to end what was the session was the one that you recorded at home with butch where it was just like you just get to walk down the road and up and you know walk down the driveway and up into your garage was that the one that was an amazing experience. My only problem with the making of Wasting Light, which we did in my house, was that I would wake up every morning and literally mop the floors. <laughs> Mopping the fucking hardwood floors with a bucket. Because you know? it's yours. I mean, you know, to me, <laughs> it's my fucking house. It's and there's yours. like beer cans everywhere. <laughs> I mean, you know, you would do the same thing. Totally. But um, yeah, so, but I, when we made our third record, Nothing Left to Lose, I had just moved back to Virginia after being away for six or seven years or not longer. I don't know, a while. Bought this house in the neighborhood where I grew up, built a studio in the basement. We we weren't signed to a record label at the time. We were let out of our contract. And so we built our own studio in the basement. It was springtime. Springtime in Virginia is so fucking beautiful, man. Like the leaves start coming back and and the cherry blossoms are out. And now you can go outside in a t-shirt and we were barbecuing almost every night and playing basketball and drinking beer every day. And it was the most relaxed. That record, I could have made that record for you. That was, the, it was such a fucking, it was like, it was like kids in a fucking treehouse. It was so much it fun. It sounds like it. That album is light on its feet in that regard too. I mean, even when you think of a song like Aurora and you just think about the way that it drifts in and out of consciousness, right? It really does feel very peaceful, like you've made a home. It's like, that's a homecoming song, that song to me. It's like, that's what you listen to when you're driving the last five miles home. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, that was also a big time of discovery for the band because 
when we made that record, it was just Nate and Taylor and I. And I think it was the first time we really felt connected as like a creative unit. It was like, all right, like now we get each other. Now we're a band. Let's do what we want to do. And I mean, also at the time, all we were listening to was like 70s AM gold music. It was like Jerry Rafferty and Andrew Gold and 10CC. So we, you know, and, and you know, bands like Corn and Limp Bizkit, Cold Chamber, like there were all these yeah. new metal bands that were huge, going like Limp Bizkit, stuff like that. And we were like, no, man, we want to sound like 10CC. <laughs> it was pretty cool. It worked. And it also kind of like, you know, for me, it was one of those moments where I realized that you could do, you could do absolutely anything. I think about how far you've come, man, from the van to now. And, and I can't wait to see the documentary, What Drives Us. How's that going? I mean, are we going to see that this year? It's great. I mean, we're in post-production right now. So yeah, I mean, it's going to, ha- it's going to happen like really soon. It's going to happen. It's coming quick. Can't wait. And it's great. I watched the final cut the other day and you know, one of the great things about it is that um, it will remind you of your love of live music. And it's, I mean, of course, right now, everybody's in that place where they're starved for it. And they just want to like kick down the front door and run outside of the nearest stage, you know, but, um, but to hear all of these like legendary artists talking about their love of the live show, um, it sort of flips it a little bit and it makes you really want to get it back. It's pretty incredible how you've been able to reflect, you know, and as we near the end of this conversation, man, it's important to, to, to acknowledge that you've been able to reflect on the legacy at 25 years and yet continue to move forward. And I wonder what that balance was like. And because, you know, I always thought of you as someone who, once you got that shot, once you found that, that lane for yourself with Foo Fighters, you just ran. You just ran. Like, like there were times we'd do interviews in other parts of the world, and I feel like you would leave the studio and run off to the next thing. Like, <laughs> you'd, barely, you'd barely have time to say goodbye. You'd just be running to the next thing you wanted to do and then to be encouraged to pause and think about legacy. You know, how did it make you feel last year under these circumstances doing it? I honestly, I'm not good at thinking about it. Like I'm good at thinking about other things. I'm not good at like, Really, like I said, that one time I sat on the couch and my eyes started to close and I felt this relaxed feeling. I was like, this, like I was so not into it in the same way. You know, I'm, I'm just happy that we survived. You know, I'm, I'm happy to be in the place where we are right now. And I know that we're here because all of the things that have come before, but, um, but, you know, I don't necessarily want to spend too much time celebrating all of that shit because that's just going to keep me that that to me is sitting on the couch with your eyes half closed it's like i don't want to do that i want to like i've already had nine cups of coffee is <laughs> i know what i do today <laughs> like, is that why when you started writing last year you were writing tales and stories and anecdotes rather than kind of personal reflections it felt very much like you're a voyeur of your own experience rather than telling a biography type autobiography type experience you know it's one of the reasons but um first of all when everything shut down, I had a real uh, fear of of becoming complacent or like stagnant or just like, oh my God, nothing's happening. I just made a record. I'm not going to write a bunch more songs. Like, what am I going to do? And I thought, oh, this is this is something that I've never had the time to do. And I honestly thought, okay, this is going to bring people like five minutes of happiness or joy in their day. Like, I'm going to write this... I'm going to write this true story about hanging out with Pantera. I'm going to write this true story about when Dave Bowie told him to stop. I'm going to write. And I thought, okay, well, you know, these are good because I'm a fucking loudmouth. Like I, I never shut up. And so why not put it 
on some Instagram page where people can like can giggle, you know, like like read it. But then it 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 became like an obsession of mine where I was like, oh my god, I have to do this more. Oh my god, I have to do this more. And I just kept writing. I mean, I kind of stopped posting stuff on that thing, but dude, I've been writing my ass off there's got to be something in the pipeline there because they're too entertaining and you have too many stories <laughs> it's in that same sort of short story format that i write all of these things part of it is to entertain but another part of it is to sort of explain to people my perspective because you have to imagine like watching something like that inauguration i mean i'm sitting on a couch in tie-dye with coarse light watching the food fighters as if like it's they're another band, you know. I'm not like wow, me, yay. I'm just like God. This is weird, and so it, that's kind of the, the perspective I write all of these things from, which I'm sure most anyone would relate to. Like, how the f- would you feel? You know, how would you feel if you're like on an email exchange with Bowie and he tells you to fuck off? It's like <laughs> like it, it just it's a, it doesn't seem real, and in a lot of the ways. In a lot of ways, it's almost like your life flashing before your eyes as it happens. So it's it's a it's a really weird thing. But I love writing. It's great, man. It's been so good to see you. This album is fantastic, bro. There's so much groove and so much honesty and truth. You know, it really is. Uh, you know, and and you know, for you guys to be at this point making records as vital as this, and I can't wait to get whatever format that those stories take. Um, what does it feel like this year going forward for you? I mean, obviously we've got a new president, which is beautiful. But beyond that. I try not to get caught up too much in trying to predict things because I feel like, you know, it's it's like that old saying that, you know, worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. You know? <laughs> That's good. In that same way, it's like you can predict as much as you like in life, but ultimately life's just going to take you where it leads, you know? There's, you, you can't necessarily control everything. So, you know, to me, it's like, I'm, I'm going to make it to the end of this interview, and then I'm going to walk out there and see what I need to do for the kids. I'd like, is there milk in the fridge? Like, do I have, what are my responsibilities for the day? And I, I mean, honestly, it's as simple as that. And knowing that, that we're not necessarily in control of um, of any sort of prediction. Like, okay, so I think it's going to be fall. I mean, listen, when John Silva calls up and says, hey, you got an offer to play, blah, blah, blah. Do you want to book it? I say, absolutely, book it. And I cross my fingers and I hope that it happens, you know, because once it opens up, dude, I mean, I don't know how many shows i just booked but like once it opens <laughs> up i'll be there but i do realize that the most important thing is that it's safe to do and it's safe for everyone and that takes everyone to get there you know i think it's important that people realize like we have to fucking look out for each other you know we have to like we're, we're in this together so let's like get together and get through it and you know i cross my fingers and hope it's sooner than later but all I can say is I'll see you there 
And long may he continue with Foo Fighters and anything else that he chooses to do in his creative space. Love him and love that conversation. Thanks very much for listening to it. Coming up in the next couple of weeks, we catch up with Hayley Williams again, which is always a really great and fascinating conversation. And Robin Thicke, what a remarkable five to 10 years he's had through divorce, through fire, through the loss of very important family members and friends around him all the way through to now. He has a lot to say and it's going to happen right here on the interview series. 